This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. In these times of danger in the Middle East, even on one's own doorstep, it was morale-boosting for everyone who attended a parliamentary reception at the Houses of Parliament in Westminster. Led by Elnet UK, with United Hatzalah of Israel and World Jewish Relief, we learnt of the support on the ground for victims in the Ukraine and Israel. Meant to mark the 600th day since the war in Ukraine started, the Hamas terror attacks meant the focus was shifted, though we were urged not to forget the terrible war started by Russia. In both conflicts, we were reminded of the sickening suffering inflicted on innocent civilians. And not just of concern to Israel, instead a war for the future of humanity between good and evil. Shocking testimonies don't seem to get easier to hear either. We heard Noam Sagi's testimony about his mother's kidnap from her kibbutz near Oz home. He gave a news conference to the London-based media, and that's coming up. And I hosted the panel discussion on the night with Asaf Admoni of United Hatzolah, Marta Kurbitsa, the chief executive of Elnet for Central and Eastern Europe, and Beth Safa, head of Older People's Programs at World Jewish Relief as well. And we also hear from Robert Jenrick MP and Lord Stuart Pollack. But first, to introduce the whole evening, this is Joan Ryan, CEO of Elnet UK. Good evening, everybody. My name's Joan Ryan, and I'm the CEO of Elnet UK. And I have to say, we are bowled over by the number of people here tonight. And it does sh- it, it's a show of, I think, profound solidarity and support to everybody who's caught up in the horrendous terror unleashed against Israel. And to see you all here today, I know I speak on behalf of all those involved in organising this evening when I say thank you. Thank you for being with us. Tonight's reception has been uh, organised by Elnet UK with the organisations, the wonderful organisations we're partnered with on this event, uh, United Hatzala and World Jewish Relief. Uh, Elnet UK is the UK part of the European Leadership Network, which aims to foster relations between the UK and Israel in collaboration um, with all our organisations across Europe. Our mission is to strengthen relations between Europe and Israel based on shared democratic values. Um, As most of you will know, this reception was initially designed as an opportunity to showcase the enormous humanitarian efforts that have been made by a number of Jewish and Israeli organisations and Elnet um, to support the people of Ukraine in their time of need. And we have prepared an expert panel that will give you an insight um, into what's been happening on the ground in that crisis. Um, And we mustn't forget Ukraine in the midst of everything else that's going on. Um, And we mustn't forget Russia's war of aggression against the Ukraine and the catastrophe that that has presented the people of Ukraine with. And beyond that, a threat, I think, to all of Europe, it's fair enough to say. It is, however, a source of um, immense grief and sadness to us all that 
many of the efforts that we are intending to describe to you that have been delivered in the Ukraine are now required for deployment in Israel following the 7th of October massacre. And as a result of this unspeakable evil that shook Israel and the civilized world and which threatens major global uncertainty, we will dedicate much of tonight's reception to this issue also. And as a link between these two, and I don't want to draw too much of a link, but as a link, President Zelensky's words, I think, are important. When he said, Israel's right to defense is indisputable. Terror is always a crime, not just against one country or specific victims, but against humanity as a whole. The world must stand united so that terror does not attempt to take or destroy life anywhere at any moment. Um, before I hand over uh, to um, our speakers for the evening, I'd like to thank our hosts, Siobhan McDonough MP and Lord Stuart Pollock, both of whom are good friends to Israel and good friends to these three organisations here tonight. Well, it's obviously a great honour to uh, be a, a joint host and welcome you all to um, Parliament. I'd like to say something about Joan, because LNET UK are extremely lucky to have somebody like Joan at the helm. And the reason I say that is we're all, all of us, uh, were shocked what happened on October the 7th. Uh, I happened to be in Jerusalem on that day. And fighting, fighting anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, uh, many of us have spent years but doing it, but it's expected on us. What Joan Ryan did and stood up against a former leader of her party and said, actually, I can't, I've got to get rid of this man, I can't stay in here, and gave up her political career to fight anti-Semitism. Joan, we love you for that. Are you playing catch-up with Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests. How about Douglas Murray? Israel is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends. I mean, there, isn't a, there isn't a fertility rate problem in, in Israel. Um, for instance, as there, there is in, in most European countries. There is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to unite its people. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN Watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, the known to some of the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be cancelled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from uh, journalists, and often it's uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that, that, to be honest, really, really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy, to be honest, to be, to be truth-tellers. And so I am deeply concerned. 
If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Johnny Gould or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould. Noam Sagi has lived in London since 2002. He's a psychologist and admits he's bound up in psychological warfare by Hamas. He's been in big demand to speak, but admits reluctance at becoming the poster boy for the kidnap. Nevertheless, he says he'll do anything in his power to get the hostages home. He and his family haven't had any sleep since. No sight nor sound has been heard from 75-year-old Ada a lifelong advocate for Arab-Jewish coexistence since that catastrophic Shabbat and Simchat Torah morning. Adasagi is a Hebrew and Arabic teacher. She always believed that communication was a bridge for a better future. She is the ultimate optimist. In my fantasies, Noam says, I really think that she's now fulfilling her life's purpose. She's looking in the eyes of her captors and she can talk to them in their language and potentially do something that no politician can do. Noam told us his mother had fought like a lioness because there was blood all over her kibbutz home. She's nowhere to be found. She's not on the dead list. She's not on the injured list. She's not on the rescued list. Officially, in Israeli terms, she's missing. And we're still waiting for something, something. Every day just gets more dreadful, more difficult. And he urged more people to stand up for decency and humanity. Because when the voices of love are silent, he says, the voices of hate just get louder and louder and louder. This is Noam Sagi, as he introduced himself to the British media at a televised news conference. My name is Noam Sagi. I'm a British citizen. I shouldn't sit here today. I should have been on my way to Heathrow to pick up my mum, who's coming to celebrate her 75th birthday today with her family here in London. I'm here because of pure evil. I'm here because I need to ask for help to release babies, kids, mothers and old people from their captivity. On Saturday morning, Kibbutz Niroz, where I was born, grew up, woke up to a massacre to a second holocaust. They've been gassed, burned, butchered, slaughtered, killed, and kidnapped. Mostly young kids and old elderly people. They burned the place to the ground, shot the dogs, nothing left. There's no politics here, no content, No religion, no race, simple humanity. People who survived the Holocaust found themselves facing another one. The last time I know, and that's the only thing I can say, is that by 9.20 UK time, that was the last communication with my mother, went into her safe room inside her house, living on her own, dealing with the grief of losing my dad just a year ago, 
snatched by people, men in their 20s, or 30s, and the 40s, who took kids and elderly people as captive. We have no information, uh, uh, and since then we are uh, uh, together working in the dark, trying to get as much as uh, information as much as you want. And to be afraid or to have any emotions, thinking about my 75 years old mom sitting somewhere in Gaza, I need to navigate something she never uh, uh, imagined that will happen. Her parents fled Europe to protect their land, and she finds herself now on the other side of the border. It's not even one generation. So it's heartbreaking. But we are very, very resolved and very clear what is it we are focusing on. They need to be back home now. And I say they, I'm talking about civilians, especially every kid under 18, every elder person over 65 should never ever in this world, by any means, we accept that this is part of any negotiation or bargaining chip for what? We didn't hear anything. If, if you mean about anything uh, uh, formal, uh, the answer is no. We have, we don't know. What keep us going? What keep me going? My son have one one grandmother. I want him to be with her uh, for his next birthday. What keeps me going is that everyone of these people, where you call them, you might look at the picture, they are family. It's people that wiped my bum when I was a baby, they teach me how to swim and how to do one plus one. I know each one of them, we grew up like that, together. It's a very, very small community. From the age of six weeks till the age of 18, we grew up together. We saw each other more than we saw our parents. Or brothers. Or brothers. This is how we grew up. And you talk about over 80 people just from that community that have been taken hostages. So what kept me going? I will do everything I can for them. One of the hostages was on the kinder transport. I call you, all of you, the media people here in this room, to connect to your human hearts Take responsibility and present the right from the wrongs. Call the Hamas for what they are, a terror group. They need to take care of their civilians and instead they're taking others. They're using you to manipulate opinions. And in this psychological warfare, you are being used. There is no place for politics. This is peace-loving people that fought all their life for coexistence and for good neighboring relationships. If they will die for peace, they will take it. If they will die for war, that will be another travesty. I want to take this opportunity to thank the most amazing people of Britain. Your overwhelming support, well received, and is so needed right now. 
I want also to thank the British government for all that they do formally and informally to bring these beautiful people back home. And now back to Lord Pollack on the night to introduce Robert Jenrick MP. It gives me uh, enormous pleasure to, to uh, introduce a, a close friend of mine, uh, Robert Jenrick MP, Minister of State and Home Office. Rob uh, is, has been a, a friend for, for, for many years. Um, I remember, and all of us will remember that moment when that convoy came down uh, the Finchley Road from up in uh, up somewhere in Yorkshire. And being a Lancashire man, I expected it from Yorkshire. But they came down from Yorkshire, and uh, they were on our streets. And it was it was Rob who who raised this first in Parliament, and has consistently done that, and is consistently doing it in the Home Office, and is fighting the fight and helping uh, wherever he can. And so, Rob, the floor is yours. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Can I uh, reiterate uh, Stuart's remarks about Joan, who, of course, I knew uh, when she was a, a member of parliament, and her uh, willingness to, to fight for British Jews and against anti-Semitism won her immense respect right across the House of Commons. And I always look out for her emails that she sends me uh, now in her new role, continuing to make the argument and to campaign, not just because this issue pertains to British Jews, but it pertains to everyone. All of us want to live in a tolerant country where basic standards of decency and civility are upheld. And that's why it was so important back then that you fought uh, against anti-Semitism. It's so important that all of us involved in public life do so now. I'm here tonight, as Joan said, originally because I'm, amongst other things, the minister responsible for the Homes for Ukraine scheme. And I wanted to come to thank the organizations here and those of you in this room who have played a part in its huge success. Of course, a lot has happened since I accepted that invitation. And so I'm here tonight, not just as a, a minister in the government responsible for that response, but also a minister in the Home Office with responsibility alongside the Home Secretary for supporting, protecting, defending the British Jewish community during this uniquely difficult, worrying period, and for defending the basic standards in our country, the red lines which we all expect to be protected, and trying to ensure that the British nationals that we have in Israel and indeed in Gaza are supported and protected and brought home particularly the hostages, and it's particularly moving to me to, to meet uh, Noam Sagi this evening. Uh, none of us can quite imagine the despair, worry, anxiety that you feel, and our, all of our thoughts are with you and your family this evening. I'm also a husband of an Israeli-born Jewish woman and father of three Jewish children, and so the difficulties and situation in Israel and Gaza is real to my family as well, having many uh, members of our family and our friends in Israel, some of whom have been very directly caught up in uh, the massacre 
which happened on October the 7th. I'm also here as someone who has advocated for as long as I've been in politics for the fundamental Western values that unite the United Kingdom, unite us with the people of Israel and with the people of Ukraine. And as Joan said, whilst we can't make false comparisons, there is something at the heart of those two conflicts today uh, which binds them together in that they are both fundamentally battles between good and evil, battles between people who respect democracy, values like freedom of religion, freedom of speech, and those who want to destroy those values, whether that be Putin's Russia or Hamas and Iran that lies behind it. On, on October the 7th, we witnessed the most barbaric attack by Hamas on the people of Israel. It's not just an Israeli or a Jewish issue. It is an assault on the principles that form the foundation of our Western values. It is similar to the threat posed by ISIS. The actions of Hamas demand our collective concern, our condemnation, and coordinated action. And we find ourselves facing two simultaneous challenges in the West with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the aggression from Hamas against Israel. These aren't isolated, they're interconnected, representing a broader attack on the collective values that we all care so passionately about in the Western world. And we as a government, we as a country, have to be committed to defending those values because it is a generational battle. And there's been, I think, and many of you will agree, a degree of complacency in the West, one which I've felt strongly about for a long time and which we can't afford to accept or to tolerate any longer. Just as Hamas explicitly seeks the destruction of Israel using innocent civilians in Gaza as human shields, Putin denies Ukraine statehood and has launched an illegal invasion that's now reached over 600 days. As we confront these challenges, we can't afford to forget the human toll and tragedy. Over 1,400 innocent civilians murdered in Israel and 200 being held hostage, including, of course, the UK citizens who are being held captive in Gaza. In Ukraine, we've witnessed untold breaches of decency, humanity, international law, and seen mass graves, torture, and the abduction of children. The suffering is sickening, and we have to respond unequivocally. Our commitment to our allies, whether it is in Ukraine or in Israel, is unwavering. And I hope you've seen from the Prime Minister, from the leader of the opposition, across party here in the House of Commons, our commitment to stand up to both of those evils. At home, here in the UK, we've got to be honest about the rise in hate, in racism, in anti-Semitism, and be resolute in our commitment to stamp it out, to draw and enforce firm boundaries of behavior, particularly in the public space that we all share. It's not acceptable to call jihad on the streets of London. 
it's not acceptable to tear down posters of hostages or to aggressively chant from the river to the sea on the streets of Whitehall, as we saw at the weekend. We have to defend the social contract upon which every successful country is built. And that's a social contract built on rights and responsibilities. That's the message that the Prime Minister, the Home Secretary and I have tried to send without question over the last few days, asking the police to rigorously, robustly enforce our laws and holding them to account when, as I'm afraid we have seen on occasion, they fail to live up to those standards. As Immigration Minister, last week I wrote to all the chief constables in England and Wales, asking them to refer cases of terror support and anti-Semitism to the Home Office so that foreign visa holders can have those visas revoked and be expelled from the UK. Because a UK visa is a privilege, it's not an entitlement. And those who are visitors to our country and abuse our rights can't be expected to stay here in our country. And the first of those cases is now working through the legal process. In this challenging time, we must, and this government will, continue to reaffirm our commitment to the values that define us as a country. And I'm proud of the government's record in standing with the British Jewish community and supporting Israel, just as I'm proud of the government and the country's record of standing up against Putin's illegal invasion of Ukraine and for the people of Ukraine. That's why when I first accepted this invitation, I wanted to praise the very good work that the organizations here tonight have done as part of a wider UK support that's welcomed over 170,000 Ukrainians to our country. Tens of thousands of people have literally opened their homes to Ukrainians, including my own family, and have found it an immensely rewarding experience. When Putin invaded Ukraine, his expectation was to swiftly seize Kyiv and the entire country. More than 600 days later, his efforts have proven unsuccessful, but he persists and he might succeed if we don't continue to support Ukraine with the same unwavering determination as we've done thus far. Kyiv remains standing due to the resilience of the Ukrainian people, but also the backing provided by allies like the UK. Putin underestimated the Ukrainians, but he also underestimated the support that Ukraine would have elsewhere in the world. Can I thank Elnet's uh, PTSD prevention program, which addresses the trauma of some of the two and a half million Ukrainian refugees in Poland and across Central and Eastern Europe? Can I thank United Hatzalah's operations, which extend from Israel to Ukraine and Moldova, responding to the Russia-Ukraine war. They've assisted 32,000 refugees with 145,000 tonnes of medical care, meals, humanitarian aid, and have airlifted 3,000 refugees to Israel. World Jewish Relief's Ukraine programme aids 215 towns 
providing medical aid, food and support to an astonishing 188,000 individuals. They assist refugees in Moldova, in Poland and here in the UK. And to close, can I just reiterate the point that I think we all agree on tonight? Ukraine must win against Putin's Russia and Israel must win against Hamas and Hezbollah. And we here in the UK must stand shoulder to shoulder, both with Ukraine and with Israel, today, tomorrow, and until both of those countries, both of those great democratic countries, our strong allies, win in those battles. That is part of a generational battle to defend Western values, to defend against terror wherever we find it, whether that be in Israel or in Ukraine. Thank you very much for inviting me here this evening. Also there on the night, Wayne David MP from Labour. As his opposition party leader, Sir Keir Starmer, resisted widespread calls from within his party, including from 60 of his own MPs, to call for a ceasefire, we wanted to hear from Mr David whose words really count. He's the shadow Middle Eastern North African minister. And here's his statement. These are terrible times. Israel has the right to defend itself according to humanitarian law. But in these incredibly dark times, it is important to offer hope. Progress has been made over the last few years with the Abraham Accords, and discussions have begun to create a normalization of relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. It is important that these initiatives are taken forward and used as a basis for addressing and hopefully solving the Palestinian-Israeli issue once and for all. Naturally, I want to see a Labour government elected as soon as possible. If we have a Labour government, it will be imperative for a proactive foreign policy to be pursued. That must mean a better relationship with the European Union and the development of a coherent policy with regard to the Middle East. A two-state solution might seem far away at the moment, but that must be the goal, and it is so important to do the, the groundwork for laying the basis for meaningful negotiations during the next few months. I hope a Labour government will make a meaningful contribution to that process. Hello everyone. My name is Aaron Cohen-Gold. I'm the Deputy Director of Elnet UK. I'd like to thank the Minister for his incredibly warm words. I know that your solidarity means a great deal to the entire British, Jewish and Israeli community. I'd like to now invite our moderator to take uh, the floor. This is Johnny Gould. Johnny is a TV host, journalist, commentator and podcaster. Um, Johnny Gould's Jewish State podcast, which many of you I know already listen to, covers Israel, the diaspora, includes top guests from army generals to politicians, artists, rabbis, rock stars. I'm, I'm even told Mossad agents, but I can't verify that myself. 
So to give you a taster, I'd like to now welcome Johnny uh, to the front and his panel. So Johnny, over to you from here. And let's start with uh, Asaf. And Asaf, you're going to go to the lectern now to uh, show everyone the, uh, the kit that you, that you wear. Um, can you just explain to us how United Hatzalah responded to the very sudden shock attacks in southern Israel? On the 7th of October, um, in the evening, I got a call, uh, being a volunteer medic of United Hatzalah, to go down south. And um, uh, I was picked up and uh, went to the south to um, replace the shift that went before me. They attended in the morning. I arrived in the evening. And we joined an ambulance crew, our ambulance crew. And we went um, to um, the outskirts of the road. Um, we didn't know where we were going. I mean, we knew where to get there. But we didn't know where we were going in a sense that we didn't appreciate that this is a war zone at the time. Um, what we saw was quite horrendous. You probably, if you follow television, you saw enough images, and I do not need to describe to you. Uh, but it's true. It's happened. I saw it. We collected bodies. We treated some injured. Many of them already been taken away. And that's how we spent uh, nearly 12 hours, so getting in. Taking, taking bodies, some injuries. The army took them out from Kibbutzim. In our case, or in my case, it was outside uh, that we waited out at the road. We took them out to our field hospital, and whoever needed to go to the main hospital uh, in Israel, a few of them, uh, we arranged for them to um, uh, be taken as well. So this is, this is my story, but my story is a reflection of about 2,000 United Hatzalah volunteers that uh, effectively gone down south uh, at the first uh, two days. Uh, overall, United Hatzalah had 7,000 volunteers. They all effectively joined uh, uh, what is now the war efforts. And um, uh, the first on the scene were the local volunteers. We have volunteers in every community, in every kibbutz, in Sterot, Ofakim, and so on. They had to attend um, the injured. Uh, right away, within reason, some of them under fire, uh, without or disregard for their safety, because that's what they tend to do, that's what they like to do, they volunteer to do, and, and so they did. And they um, were able to save as many as, as they could. I can say that we, as an organization, lost two volunteers. They died in, in line of duty, may I say that? Um, we have uh, six uh, injured uh, volunteers at the end of what we um, uh, uh, at the end of the day uh, we also uh, became aware of the fact that six uh, children of our volunteers were taken to Gaza um, and um, uh, so uh, like everybody else in Israel the war for us is, is an ongoing situation uh, it's just begin or so people tell us so local volunteers help um, uh, the local communities. Uh, many of our volunteers came down uh, to try to help and went to different cities according to uh, and kibbutzim, wherever they were needed, of course, outside, because by that stage the army was in slightly more control and prevented us from getting in, rightly so. We sent about 120 cars, uh, many ambulances, to help to evacuate uh, the injured. Um, 
and um, we set up a field hospital on the outskirts of Sterot. That's where we took uh, many of the injured first, and then, as I said before, we took them to um, to hospital according to what the doctors and the paramedic told us to do. We have a, a big supply a logistics center in Beit Shemesh for uh, people who know Israel, kind of in the middle of Israel, outskirts of Yerushalayim. We transported a lot of our equipment, a lot of our equipment down south and, and effectively set up a logistics center there next to our field hospital. We supplied a lot of the equipment to the army. Uh, I considered um, uh, they had everything that they needed and we were able to uh, supplement what they didn't. Um, and um, uh, regretfully, uh, many of our lorries that brought down equipment also had to take the dead and the injured back to Israel because that what was available, and we had to uh, we had to take part in that. So that's that's our um, uh, kind of first first day, and and the following days. Thank you, Asaf. It it really doesn't get any easier to listen to these testimonies, and uh, we have all of us been exposed to these terrible tragedies, and uh, we are remote from this, but um, Marta, you haven't been in the Ukraine. Israel has experienced these traumas before, but um, can you describe to us what Israel will need as a whole country in terms of dealing with this and the mental well-being, the anguish of the families, and indeed everyone is connected in some way uh, to to the hostages and to the dead. First of all, I would like to draw a little uh, comparison to what happened in Ukraine and what happened in Israel, because this is the this is the topic for our evening. So, there was this shock factor at the beginning, both in Ukraine and in Israel. Um, there is a trauma, feeling of abandonment. However, in uh, in Ukraine, the Russian invasion was sudden and technically unexpected, but there was a chatter about it. And in Israel, there was nothing. It just happened. People had to wait a couple of hours for the army, for, for help to arrive. And uh, this is something that I don't think Jewish state ever experienced. Um, it was like there is no Jewish state to protect the Jewish citizens in their own homes while there are terrorists banging on their door and trying to kill them. Um, and this created this, this, this feeling of abandonment is being um, compared by psychologists to a parent that abandons the child when the child needs the parent the most. Um, when it's vulnerable, there is, uh, there is no one to help him. And I think this is something that makes the Israeli recovery from this trauma once it will be possible to start the recovery the most difficult because uh, Israel failed those people. Israel as a state failed those people in a way. Um, it's going to help them. It is helping them. Uh, however, however, this will be probably one of the biggest challenges for, uh, for recovery of Israel. Uh, right now, the Ministry of Health has uh, launched a campaign um, which is raising awareness how to help yourself when you cannot go to the, to the psychologist to, to get mental health right now. Um, 
there is also uh, there are also a lot of uh, volunteers in different hospitals and the mental health support centers because there is not enough people to actually meet all the needs of the of the Israeli society. So, uh, um, Israeli experts in the field of mental health support they are they agree in one that the trauma recovery as Israel knew doesn't exist anymore. It has it will have to be completely rebuilt. Um, so what they will need, they will need immediate help right now. This is the acute stress disorder phase, the first 30 days after a traumatic event that still gives you a chance not to develop PTSD. Um, so this first 30 days are crucial. Um, campaign, the campaign launched by Israeli Foreign Ministry also, uh, also urges people not to use alcohol, not to take sleeping pills, and not to use cannabis. Um, because your body and mind have to deal with the trauma uh, through getting getting healthy sleep or or not. Apparently, a lot of trauma is being processed through the nightmares and in your dream, and all those aspects, all those elements, actually make it harder for your body to go through with it. So, right now, people need to go back to try to go back to their routines. Um, they have to use their social network, their family, their closed ones. Um, and there is a chance that 80% 80, 80 of them will not develop PTSD in the future. And of course, this is a battle for resources. I'm sure as you have watched your news, you, it's crossed your mind that Ukraine is just not in our news cycle. And for those of us who are still looking at it, the war is vicious, the war is going on, there are terrible losses going on. And the resources are here at home and with us. Have you at World Jewish Relief, welcome Beth, had to divert some of your vital resources from supporting communities of need in Ukraine to Israel? I mean, it's a, it's a terrible choice. Um, well, Jewish Relief, we, we don't officially, we don't work in Israel. Uh, we work in many countries of the world, but Israel uh, is not one of them. But clearly, as a Jewish organization, um, we have, you know, uh, high numbers of uh, staff who've been affected. Um, we, we have, everybody has connections with Israel. We have made the decision to offer um, support to three Israeli organizations, but we are not diverting any funds from our important Ukraine work um, so we are not raising uh, additional funds for this uh, for this support to Israel, um, but we recognise that the the needs in Israel are great, and we commend our colleagues, um, the JDC, uh, MDA, and the, obviously the organisations who are here today in the response that they are providing to this this horrific massacre and uh, ongoing trauma. I am now going to ask the diaspora question of all of our panel. I'm going to start with Beth, then Marta, and then talk to uh, also to Asaf. And uh, I'm sure many of us, if not all of us, to a lesser or greater degree, think about making Aliyah, going to live in Israel, or live somewhere else. When these fearful things happen, what is the future? Beth, I want to ask you, um, why don't members of the Jewish community in Ukraine simply leave and head to Europe, the UK, North America? For that matter, when I spoke to Bill Browder 
on the podcast, um, he said that not only should Jews leave Russia, but everyone <laughs> should leave Russia, Bill Browder included. He wasn't allowed back in, as you well know, Bill Browder, Magnitsky hero. Um, what keeps... Because the population is massive in Ukraine. When we all realised the Jewish population was 200,000 officially and maybe even 300,000 unofficially, Beth, uh, what's keeping them in Ukraine? This is a question that we have been asked, I've been asked personally many times over the past few years, and not, not just since the, the start of the full-scale invasion. It's a, very complex, it's a very complex question. We work with Jewish older people who are incredibly in Ukraine, who are incredibly tied to their homes, their roots, their culture, their language. Um, they also know a lot of people who did make Aliyah and came back because they couldn't adjust to, uh, to new climate, to new, new culture and, and new experience. Um, it isn't a case of, you know, the grass is always greener, I think is the, the impression that, that people may have had. Um, and, and, you know, for now, in terms of the, the war context, um, firstly, men under the age of 60 are not allowed to leave Ukraine. Um, and so that, that isn't an option for them. Um, but there is a sense, as, I mean, if we talk about the, the situation in Israel, you know, we speak to our partners. Some of them have moved to Israel, and now they're considering returning to Ukraine because if they feel they're living in a, a war situation, they'd rather be at home. Um, so that, that's another, another angle to this. Um, but so they said, you know, we would rather be frightened at home than in Israel. Um, so for, for older Jewish people, it, is, it isn't as simple as moving. You know, it's harder for an older person to leave. Um, but a lot of the older Jewish community, of course, their younger uh, relatives have already left, and that leaves them incredibly vulnerable um, without those, those uh, informal support networks. I have some skin in the game. My uh, Galician-born, now Ukrainian, uh, great-uncle uh, got on a boat went to Palestine in 1938 and uh, stayed and settled in Haifa and his children still live there, even now grandchildren. Um, Asaf, at this time of crisis, can you make an argument for Aliyah that we, <laughs> could, that we can talk about the grist of Jewish society in Israel being stronger and more united than ever? Give me the hardest question. <laughs> Well, uh, for me, it's easy because um, uh, I live in Israel. We have a home in Israel. We split our time between Israel and here. So we enjoy both worlds. Now one of them less enjoyable. I think that um, uh, really it's, um, uh, it's where, where it is more likely, particularly as what you see happening in London, maybe in other places in the UK, um, if you have to be mobbed, or if you have to be frightened, be frightened in Israel, at least you're among friends and Jews. Um, so that would be my argument. There you go. It had to be asked. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, our guests tonight, Marta Kubica, Asaf Admoni, and Beth Safa, please give them a round of applause. And I'm now going to reintroduce the chief executive of Elnet UK, Joan Ryan, for the next part of our evening's procession. Can we show uh, our appreciation of Johnny Gould? Thank you. There's a lot of competing attention for you, I do know. You're probably consuming more media than ever before to be right up to speed with what's going on in Israel and back home. I'm playing my part in the best way I can 
using my journalistic and production skills to make the case for Israel via this Johnny Gould's Jewish State, and I've done it since 2018. If you enjoy my podcast, and you'd rather it existed than not, that I kept doing it, you can support me very simply by buying me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash johnnygould because it really helps. Tell your friends, subscribe now if you haven't already, scroll back and look through the 120 previous episodes. And as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>